Good morning. You're probably wondering why I'm preaching this early. I committed not only to preach at Merrill, which was fine, but I also committed to teach Sunday school at Merrill. I don't know what I was thinking. Uh, how do I teach Sunday school and get there on time? It doesn't really work. So we moved the sermon up because I have no memory. Uh, just want you to know that uh, today is 35 years that Highland has been in existence. Is that pretty cool? 35 years. So. God has been very gracious. If you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn to 1 Corinthians 1, 13 to 17. 1 Corinthians 1, 13 to 17. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, uh, that you have been faithful is not surprising. That you have been gracious is not surprising. That you would allow this church to exist for 35 years in spite of ourselves, that is grace. And we are thankful for it. Father, may we be more faithful tomorrow than today, more faithful next year than this year. And may you use your people in ways that are glorifying to your name. Father, continue to instruct us as we look at 1 Corinthians. May you take your word and impart it to our heart. For our betterment and your glory, it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Some of us undoubtedly have heard the name Ivan the Great. Ivan the Great is Ivan III. He was essentially the first czar over Russia, although he ruled over quite a bit smaller area than what we call Russia today. He really was the first czar because he fashioned himself as the continuation of the Roman Empire, and he wanted to be a Caesar. So he was the first to call himself Tsar, Tsar Ivan. His first order of business was to free his people from paying tribute to the Mongols from Mongolia. And so he was often away, leaving his family behind, his wife Maria behind. They had been betrothed since age six, married at age 11. They had a child, Ivan the Younger, and then she tragically died at age 25. Many in the court were concerned that there was only one offspring. What happened if he were to perish? So they wanted Ivan to marry again. The problem was that Ivan was too busy at war. He wasn't interested in courting someone. And so they had to take drastic measures. They had to find a bride for Ivan on their own. Interestingly enough, although this is Russia and the Russian Orthodox Church, it was the Catholic Pope Paul II in the latter part of the 15th century that came to the rescue. Undoubtedly, Paul II wanted to strengthen Catholic bonds with the Russian Orthodox Church and, as it turns out, with the Greek Orthodox Church as well, because he suggested Sophia, 
who was the niece of the Greek or Byzantine Emperor Constantine. So Sophia was to be the choice. Now, as I mentioned, he was only six years old when he was betrothed to his first wife, but it took three years of red tape and negotiation before he was ready to marry his second wife, Sophia. As it turns out, her uncle, Constantine, said, nobody will marry my, my niece unless that person is part of the Greek Orthodox Church. Of course, he's the Russian czar. So these negotiations took a long time. In order to sweeten the deal, an artist was hired and painted a picture of Sophia, for Ivan had never met her before. He saw the picture, he liked what he saw, and he agreed that he would become part of the Greek Orthodox Church. So he and 500 of his bodyguards traveled to the Byzantine or Greek Empire, to Constantine's empire and to his palace, and they were just about to baptize him when all 500 of his bodyguards said, if he's going to be baptized, we will be baptized. Now they needed to find 500 priests. And if you've ever seen a Greek Orthodox priest, if you've been in Israel, you've seen them. They are dressed from top to bottom in black flowing robes, and they have a tall black silk hat. Picture the scene. 500 bodyguards and a czar and 501 priests in their flowing robes and their top hats wading into the Mediterranean. And just when they're about to baptize in the Greek Orthodox Church, it's baptism by immersion, suddenly somebody said, how can we baptize men of war? Now this is where everything I've said up to this point I know to be historical fact. Now I'm getting into legend. I think it happened, but I'm not certain. The sources are a little less sure. And so there was some negotiation. How do you baptize men of war when you are a pacifistic denomination? Which they were in, to large part, still are. So negotiations took place. Then they marched back out into the Mediterranean. And this is the legend when each man was baptized, he pulled the sword from his scabbard, held it high, and he was baptized all except for the arm and the sword. I don't know. I'm just telling you what I read. This is the problem. The Lord is not interested in believers that dichotomize their life. The Lord's not interested in believers who say, this part belongs to the Lord. This part does not. God wants believers who are sold out for Christ. And that actually is a picture of baptism, is it not? Death to self, rising in newness of Christ. That's the visual picture of baptism. With this introduction, I want to pick up and I want to read verses 13 to 17. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. 
I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. <coughs> For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. As you and I begin to consider our text, let's remember our context. Paul was on the second of three missionary journeys. It's AD 52 or 53. He plants the church at Corinth. He stays there for 18 months. He becomes their first pastor. But Paul is not just a pastor. He's a church planter. And he's called by God to get on a ship to cross the Aegean Sea and to plant the church at Ephesus. After he leaves, the vision enters the church. And remember, this group called Chloe's people, they come to Paul and they say, you got to know, Paul, that in the church at Corinth, there's all sorts of division. This is what we looked at last week. Let me read it again, verses 11 and 12. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. <coughs> what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas or Peter, or I follow Christ. Now we remember what's going on. Paul's their first pastor. Then they have Apollos. Then they have Peter. And then there's some individuals who say, I don't need the church. I don't need the bride of Christ. Never mind that it's the only institution that Jesus created. I don't need it. I'm on my own. It's just Jesus and me. And you remember from last week, we talked about this. Probably the Paul followers were some of the founders of the church alongside Paul. And they love the fact that Paul gives reams of notes. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 6, that he's not very eloquent. But when you're sitting in Paul's lap, you're, you're writing notes, you're writing theological terms, you're learning things, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's good, but let's remember that we are not to be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. Remember what Jesus said, to whom much is given, much more is expected. The more we learn about Christ, the more we learn about his word, the more culpable you and I are to obey the word of God. Then there's the Apollos group. The Apollos group are individuals who like the Alexandria trained style. They were rhetoricians. They were smooth. They were silky. They were favored by romantics. They're the individuals that when they speak, you just kind of follow them because they're easy to follow. They're easy to understand. They speak to the heart. And that's good. But let's remember that we don't want to follow individuals who just can speak well. We want some content to transform our lives. It's not just about notes. It's not just about being interested. It's transformation within our lives. And then there's the followers of Cephas or Peter. We mentioned last week they're probably the traditionalists. They're probably the ones that say if it hasn't been done before, it isn't going to be done now. They're the individuals that like it the way it started. Paul or Peter had that bent, did he not? You remember in Acts chapter 10 and in Galatians chapter 2, 
Peter really liked the law, even though Jesus fulfilled it in Matthew 5, 17, for all of us, he wanted to go back to the law, but only when Jews were around. When Jews were around, he was all over those 613 laws, but when he was with Gentiles, man, he wanted a double burger, medium rare, wrapped in bacon. He loved that kind of stuff, but he was a hypocrite. He acted one way with one group and another way with another group, and he kind of pretended that he was always the way he acted with those groups. And you remember that Paul condemned him. So the legalist is the individual who, well, they give angry birds a bad name. They're angry Christ followers. They are legalists. They have this sense that, you know, if you, you don't stomp on toes and beat up liberals in every sermon, it ain't a sermon. It's a bad look for Christianity. And then there were those that said, all I need is Christ. Never mind the fact that we have 60 statements in Scripture of one another. We need each other. And the book of Hebrews says, do not forsake the assembly of the saints as some are the habit of doing. And Jesus' only institution that he created is the church. And he created it because you and I need it. These, then, are the factions. No wonder Paul writes, is Christ divided? Now, we might, as English speakers, say, absolutely not. You can't divide Christ. But the Greek text actually demands the answer, yes. Yes, Christ is divided. He shouldn't be. We should stand firm on the bedrock truths of Scripture and then our preferences, the peripherals, liking Paul or liking Apollos or liking Cephas or saying I'm just with Christ, those peripherals we ought to hold loosely and with grace. Is Christ divided? Actually, he is being divided by that church. May he not be divided by this church. And then Paul asked two more questions. He said, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? While the first question was written in such a way that in Greek you have to say yes, the second two questions are written in such a way that in Greek you have to say no. Paul was not crucified for you. Even if Paul is a martyr, he's not a savior. And he wasn't baptized for you, and you aren't baptized in Paul's name. Instead, Matthew 28, 18 to 20 says that when we are baptized, we are baptized in the name of the Father and in the Son and in the Holy Spirit, never in the name of any individual. However, one issue that does tragically divide Christ's followers or those who proclaim Christ. But one in, in instant or one area where we cannot give an inch is the gospel. And whether we realize it or not, baptism is the illustration of the text. The meat of the text is the gospel. And there is no compromise on the gospel. So Paul says you can't give in on the gospel. He says baptism 
It's a secondary issue. Important, but a secondary issue. The gospel is central. He says in verse 17, Jesus didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and the power of God. In fact, he goes on to say, of baptism, I think I only baptized Crispus and, and Gaius. Oh yeah, I think there was the household of Stephanus, but beyond that, I'm not sure I baptized anyone else. I love that about Paul. Because Paul can't remember exactly who he baptized, and I have that issue as well. I remember uh, a long time back, I was leading a tour in Israel, and when we go to Israel, we always go to Yardanay. And Yardanay is on the Jordan River. It's the only place that Israel allows Christians, Christ followers, to baptize. And so everybody wants to be baptized in the mighty Jordan. You see how the width of the mighty Jordan, powerful river, isn't it? You had no idea that the Jordan was that small. It is. So everybody wants to be baptized in the Jordan, but I believe you can only be baptized once. Now, if you were baptized as an infant, I'll rebaptize you. But if you were baptized as a believer, no can do. I'm not interested in baptizing you a second time. But everybody wants to be baptized in the Jordan. And so on this particular trip, there was a gal named Sarah. Uh, Sarah's from the church uh, I pastored in Pennsylvania, and she was there. Uh, she's married and with child now, so she's a woman. And she came on this particular trip, and she wanted to be baptized in the Jordan. And so, like everyone else, I spent some time. I listened to everyone who wants to be baptized. Uh, I listened to their testimony, make sure they know Christ. And, and she said all the right things. And so uh, I baptized her in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And it kind of got a little emotional for me because, you know, I remember her as just a little girl, and now she's this grown woman, and I have the privilege of baptizing her in the Jordan, so I came up to her later, and I said, you know, that was, that was really powerful for me. I love the fact that I had the privilege of baptizing you, and she had already told me that she came to Christ, I know, unbelievable, listening to a sermon of mine at age seven, and it was just very moving, and I said, it, it, was, it was wonderful to baptize you. And she said, yeah, twice. I said, what? She said, you baptized me when I was seven. I said, really? You kind of didn't mention that detail. She said, yeah, but we were at the Jordan. And, and this is my point, not to beat up Sarah, but my point is this. Paul doesn't always remember who he baptized. He baptized Crispus and Gaius and the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, he doesn't remember and so in this particular case, I'm in good company with Paul. But while Paul doesn't remember exactly who he baptized, he has no confusion over the gospel. Absolutely none. And he says in verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied, of its power. Paul is not denigrating baptism. He talks about it in Colossians 2. He gives us the longest passage really on baptism in Romans 6. He's not denigrating baptism at all. 
He's just saying it's not the gospel. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Now we live in an area where very, very sincere people believe in baptismal regeneration. I want to break that down for us. Baptism means to go in the water. It actually means to immerse. And regeneration means that one's soul is made alive. So baptismal regeneration believes that it is through the waters that one's soul is spiritually made alive to Christ. And so people in this tradition, if you go to a funeral, they might say, John here is in heaven because eight and a half decades ago in this very church, John was baptized and now he is with God in heaven. And it's a sincere belief, but it does fly in the face of what Paul says when he says, the Lord did not call me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. The gospel is not baptism. There's a second very sincere group in our area. It's baptismal synergism. Let me break that down. Baptism means to go into the waters. Literally means immerse, but again in this tradition it's probably more likely to be sprinkled. And synergism means to be with or to go alongside. Baptismal synergism believes it's faith in God and baptism by which we are saved. And again, it's placing confidence, not 100% in Christ, but also in an act, and baptism doesn't save. Paul says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul only baptized a few. Crispus Gaius and the household of Stephanus. It's not because he's against baptism. He's for baptism. But he doesn't want baptism and the gospel to be confused. Think about his call. It's in Acts 9. But I want to read about the words he talked about his call. Out of darkness into light in Acts 26. Let me read verses 14 to 18. I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, that is his Hebrew name, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me And to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified. How? By faith in me. And whether you read the account in Acts 9 or you read it in Acts 26, neither one of them have anything to do with water. Verse 18 says, 
that they may receive forgiveness of sin and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. No wonder he writes that he did not come to baptize but to preach the gospel in power. John 1, 11 and 12. He, Jesus, came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what is baptism? Baptism is a public response. It's a parable. It's a reenactment of inner transformation that is visualized for others as we die to self and we rise in newness of Christ. Think about the Acts of the Apostles. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches, and the text says they believed. And then they were baptized, 3,000 that day. The sequence is very important. They believed, and then they are baptized. Admittedly, in the New Testament, there's no separation between belief and them responding in baptism. We have this awkward period of time as evangelicals today, we believe and then we don't obey the command of the Lord to be baptized. They believed and then they were baptized. In Acts chapter 8, we have an Ethiopian and he reads from Isaiah 53, the suffering of Christ. Philip explains it to him. He comes to Christ and then he is baptized. In Acts 16, In verses 11 to 15, we have Lydia and her household. They hear the preaching of the truth of the gospel. They accept Christ, and then they are baptized. We have the jailer in Philippi. It's very late in the morning. That is, like, two in the morning. And he hears the gospel. He comes to Christ, he and his family, and then they are baptized The baptism is a visual parable. It's a response to the gospel. It's a public declaration that we have died to self and we arise new in Christ. That's what baptism is. So the pattern of Scripture is belief in Jesus. It's his death, burial, and resurrection alone and faith in what he did. His death is a payment of our sin. His resurrection is evidence of life after the grave. And when we accept Christ, then we're baptized, signifying that we've died to self and we rise in newness of life. That's the picture of baptism. In fact, when Paul writes it in Romans chapter 6, the picture is almost of us going down into the water like a grave and coming up in newness of life because that's what's happened when Christ opened the eyes of our dark soul and we believe and receive Jesus as Savior. So what is our right response? Well, first, 
We need to make sure today that each one of us have placed our faith in Jesus alone. That our confidence is not in anything we do, whether confirmation or baptism or church attendance or good works. Our confidence isn't in any of that. Our confidence is in Christ. And his death as a payment of our sin His resurrection is evidence of life after the grave. We believe in Christ. And then our response is to know that we live in an area of baptismal regeneration and baptismal synergism. And some of our loved family and friends and co-workers might be placing their confidence not in Christ, but in something we do. And none of us can do anything that would merit grace, which is unmerited. And so, with conviction, we share with grace, 1 Corinthians 1.17, that Paul did not come to baptize, but to preach the gospel, which is the power of Christ. It is Jesus alone who saves. Let's pray. Father God, uh, in no way do we desire to be divisive. And yet, when it comes to the gospel, we need to stand firm. Help us to do so with grace, but with conviction. And if there's some here today that do not know your son Jesus as Savior, By faith, may they believe in Christ, receive Jesus, and be given eternal life. And give us the grace and the words to share biblical truth with people we dearly love. And even with people we barely know, that they too may come to a saving knowledge of your son Jesus. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.